God's word in John says this, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter by the sheep pen, uh, does not enter the sheep pen by the gates, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought them out, uh, he goes ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. And then the Lord Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, those of us who uh, know you as our good shepherd are very grateful. Heavenly Father, what a privilege uh, that the Lord Jesus should die for people like us. Father, please again, we ask, forgive every sin. Please strengthen uh, uh, weak hands and feet. Please, Father, make our hearts robust in service of you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a great privilege, you know, to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, The greatest decision you can make on earth is to trust Jesus as your saviour and king. Uh, To follow Jesus faithfully. To walk the road that leads to the joy of heaven and that ends in eternal life with him. You see, even though I fail him consistently and constantly in the things I think and the things I say and the things I do and sometimes the things I don't do, I have a heavenly father who never ceases to love me, who never ceases to forgive me, whose mercies never come to an end. His faithfulness to me is infinitely greater than my faithfulness to him. His love and faithfulness are so great that whilst I was a sinner, Christ died for me. While I was God's enemy, a rebel against him, he made me his friend through the death of his son, Jesus. And he'll continue to save me. He'll take me to be with him uh, because he raised Jesus back to life from the dead as my eternal saviour and king. And I hope that you are following Jesus. I hope that you are one of his disciples and that you continue to follow faithfully no matter where he leads you. And if you're not yet a Christian, well, I hope you become a true follower of Jesus very soon. And our passage uh, this afternoon is about discipleship. Uh, What it means to follow Jesus. What it might cost you to follow Jesus. Uh, Don't fool yourself. To follow Jesus actually is to walk the hardest road that you can take. He leads you to places that you don't want to go. He'll show you the truth about yourself and call you to deal with some very ugly things in your life. He'll demand more of you than you'll ever believe possible you could give. He'll call call you to stand with him 
against the cultural tide to walk in a direction that's different from the direction everyone else seems to be walking. He'll want you to change from what you are to what he wants you to be. And he'll require you to surrender everything you have and everything you are to him. And he'll not let you rest, you know, as a kind of part-time disciple. God the Father wants you to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. And if you think I'm exaggerating, hear what Jesus says about the commitment that's required. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, Jesus isn't saying we shouldn't love our mums and dads. We should. Remember, he said, I came to fulfill the law. Uh, and the law tells us to honour our parents. But to belong to Jesus is such a great privilege that no other relationship is to get in the way. And Jesus tells us that we should count the cost of following him. If we wanted to build a house and uh, we dug out the foundations and poured the concrete in but didn't have enough money to finish it, people would think we were stupid. I've seen grand designs, and they're right. Um, In the same way, Jesus says, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Strong words, aren't they? But they aren't my words. They're the words of the King, King Jesus himself. Now, please understand that Jesus will never turn anyone away who genuinely seeks to come to him to be saved by him, to follow him. He promises, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And you've no need to worry that you've got to become perfect, you've got to become better than you are now, you've got to do something specific um, before you can come to him, because you can come to Jesus and ask him to be your saviour right now, right this minute, just as you are. Uh, But once you come to him, you mustn't expect to stay as you are. Let me give you some context for our verses, 18 to 22. Um, Jesus has healed a leprous man. We thought about that last week in verses 1 to 4. And then he healed a centurion's servant in verses 5 to 13. He went to Peter's home by the shores of the Sea of Galilee and he healed Peter's sick mum-in-law. Um, And by verses 16 and 17, we read that he drove out the spirits of the demon possessed and he healed all the sick and that this was to fulfill uh, what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases. This is King Jesus pushing back the curse of sin and pointing forward to the cross where he'll defeat the power of sin and death for his people. Crowds were pressing in on him. If Jesus had wanted to sort of rack up as many followers as he could, then he only has to stay where he is, uh, in Capernaum, by the Sea of Galilee, and big crowds of eager followers will come to him. Uh, And it's fascinating. I think it's fascinating 
that at this very moment we're told in verse 18, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross over to the other side of the lake. In the original language of this passage, when we're told that Jesus saw the great multitudes around him, uh, the word is about far more than a passing glance. It suggests a careful, thoughtful look. Jesus saw the crowd, he assessed what he saw, and then he gave orders to leave for the other side of the lake. Why would he leave these great crowds of people who wanted to be with him? Some commentators say that Jesus was very tired and he needed to get away from the crowds and rest. And actually, we're told in the passage you'll consider next week in verse 24, that he fell asleep in the boat. But more was involved here than physical exhaustion. Jesus wants to get away because he isn't interested in popularity, in simply having great crowds around him as an end in itself. If you're familiar with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke and John, um, then you'll know this. If you're not, uh, please read them. Please read them again and again and again. They're great. If you are familiar with them, you'll remember that there were times when he simply turned away at crowds because they weren't truly committed to following him. Uh, the Bible even tells us that a crowd of people followed him until he told truths about himself that offended them. And then when they heard these hard sayings about him, the crowd left him and only 12 disciples were left. If he'd wanted the crowds to follow him, Jesus wouldn't have said things that drove people away in large numbers. But he isn't interested in being popular with crowds. He is interested in building devoted disciples who will follow him, who will obey him wholeheartedly, and then go on to tell the world about him. Some churches today, I think, seem... Uh, more keen than Jesus was for Jesus for uh, crowds to sign up as Jesus' followers. They say, actually, it's easy to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, but Jesus himself uh, seems to make discipleship the hardest thing in the world. The Bible seems to show more of his would-be followers walking away than actually following him. Jesus isn't so much after quantity as much as commitment. So let us be wholehearted disciples. Uh, let's make sure we're just not part of an admiring crowd that's tagging along for a while. So Jesus is leaving. And this puts people who think they want to be his followers in the position of making difficult choices to follow him or not. And the first man comes along in verse 19. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. In the culture in which Jesus lived, a teacher of the law, his job title was scribe. He was a very significant man. He'd be like a, a bishop in the Church of England uh, today. 
He was well educated. He uh, was skilled in studying and teaching the Jewish law given to Moses. A teacher of the law was a highly respected religious authority. On a purely human level, you can see how this man becoming a follower of Jesus would really have uh, boosted Jesus' street cred. It would be clear to everyone that he was gathering lots of followers. And some of them were these important religious leaders. That would really give an impact. What a great thing to have this teacher of the law join the team. In fact, his offer seems remarkable. He will follow Jesus wherever, wherever he went. It's an unconditional offer by a very important man. But Jesus replies in verse 20, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. A well-respected commentator and pastor called Don Carson says that Jesus' reply was neither an invitation nor a rebuke, but a pointed way of saying that true discipleship to the Son of Man isn't comfortable and shouldn't be undertaken without counting the cost. Think of what Jesus was telling the man. Animals and birds have a home of their own, but Jesus, who actually created everything, has no such creature comforts. He didn't even have his own bed at night. And to make the contrast even more stark, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Now this teacher of the law would have known that the title Son of Man means Messiah, God's anointed king. It comes from the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel writes, I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed." This teacher of the law realized that Jesus is saying he is the Messiah, God's anointed king, to whom dominion and glory and an eternal kingdom will be given. And perhaps he thought that the nearer he was to this king, the greater access he would have to the glories of the coming kingdom. This man wanted to be on the inside track of a glorious earthly kingdom. And when Jesus tells this teacher that he, God's king, doesn't even have a place to lay his head, he's hinting that before the riches of the kingdom would be enjoyed, there'd be hardship and suffering. And for Jesus himself, that meant the sufferings of the cross. As Jesus says in Luke, for as the lightning that flashes out of one part of heaven uh, shines to another part under heaven, So the Son of Man will be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. The teacher of the law was looking at Jesus as a quick and easy way to the glories of the kingdom. But Jesus says that his expectations of worldly comfort and glory would not be met by following him. 
The glory would come, but the cross comes first. And that's the same for us too. You're a Christian. The glory will come, but you must expect to suffer first. Our friend Tim Chester, he's speaking, I think, at that uh, conference that uh, Ian mentioned. Tim Chester says, The pattern of the cross and resurrection, the pattern of suffering followed by glory, is not the only the pattern for Jesus, but also the pattern for the world. The pattern of the cross and resurrection applies in the same way to believers. We follow the way of the cross. The cross is the essential mark of Christian discipleship. We follow the way of the cross, not the way of glory. But we follow the way of the cross, sustained by the hope of coming glory. The pattern of Christian experience conforms to the pattern of Christ's own experience. The way of the cross is followed by the glory of the resurrection. Suffering followed by glory. This teacher of the law may have expected he would get a high position and a palace and possessions that normally belong to those people who are close to the king. But Jesus says that following him is to take a hard road. And sometimes people do start to follow Jesus with the same sort of expectations. They think that if they follow Jesus, they won't have any more problems. Well, think again. Uh, Some folks are taught that actually following Jesus will lead to um, financial and material blessings. They'll be very prosperous in this world. Actually, that won't happen either. Uh, Following Jesus may well lead you to many more problems than you might otherwise have had. Remember what uh, our brother Ian preached on two weeks ago? Jesus spoke of those who would be his followers and said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He told his 12 disciples, If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. He said to them, In this world you'll have tribulation. And the Apostle Paul said, yes, and all who live to desire, desire sorry, to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now the eternal blessings that result from following Jesus will come. But right now, we must remember that as we go through suffering, even today, we must not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly, We are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. They don't seem like it at the time, but that's what Paul calls them. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Make no mistake, following Jesus is not the path to instant comfort. It's the narrow gate and the narrow way, but it leads to life. What we learn from Jesus' reply to the teacher of the law is that following Jesus may well cost us our comfort and our ease. And then in verse 21, another disciple comes up and says to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Seems quite a reasonable request, doesn't it, to us? Um, Commentators disagree over what this man meant. Some suggest... Maybe that his father had just died 
and he needed to go to his burial. My understanding is at that time and probably now uh, that when someone died, they were buried within 24 hours. Some suggest that his father was sick but not yet uh, dead. He was dying and that he needed to take care of his family obligations until he did die and was buried. I came across the story of a traveller in an eastern country who wanted to hire a guide for the trip. One man he tried to hire said that he'd make the trip, but first he had to wait until he buried his father and then pointed to an old man uh, sitting in a doorway looking as healthy and as happy as Larry. Uh, and some commentators say uh, that the father of the man who's talking to Jesus actually was in good health. But when he did die, eventually, then the man would go and follow Jesus. This is a way of saying that the man's father actually was more important to him and that he wanted to be with him until the time of his death and burial, whenever that time might come. To go and bury one's father seems like a good concern. Who should be given leeway but someone who needs to look after the needs of their family? But Jesus didn't accept the man's reason. In verse 22, Jesus told him, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus' command, follow me, is a present tense command. It means keep on following me. The man is already a follower and he's confronted with the fact that Jesus is about to leave. He's about to stop following Jesus for a while to look after his father. The man uses a word that pointed out the whole nature of his problem. That word is first. Lord, first let me go and bury my father. See, the man has a greater priority than following Jesus at that moment, uh, that of seeing to his father's requirements. Jesus told him, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. These dead who are to bury their own dead are people who are spiritually dead. They're not following Jesus at all. Let them sort it out, says Jesus. But you, follow me. Don Carson says that Jesus detected the man's insincerity, a qualified acceptance of Jesus' lordship. And that was not good enough. Commitment to Jesus must be without reservation. Such is the importance that Jesus attached to his own person and mission. Jesus is suggesting that other people could attend to the man's father, whatever the needs of his father might have been. See, this man had divided loyalties and his earthly concerns held him and brought him to a crisis of discipleship. And this man had begun to follow Jesus, but he hadn't realized that following Jesus meant placing Jesus' call and Jesus' priorities above all others. He hadn't thought that to follow Jesus meant loving Jesus more than loving his own father and putting Jesus first over everything else. Some people begin to follow Jesus only to find along the way uh, that Jesus and following him 
conflicts with other demands in life, even some of the most basic demands. Jesus doesn't call everyone everyone to renounce earthly concerns in such a radical way as he did this man. But then again, he just might. Even here in Rotherham, he just might. And that's the cost of following Jesus. Jesus said, he who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I came across an illustration of how these two men's stories uh, may be linked. It's a strange kind of illustration, but please uh, bear with me. Think about following Jesus as a physical walk. Jesus um, uh, calls us to follow him. And we have to put our first foot forward, don't we? We have to lift a foot up and, uh, and uh, put it where he says to put it. Uh, we may think that the place he calls us to put our foot will be a comfortable one. And in our ignorance, we might be very eager to put our foot forward because we haven't realised what following Jesus means. And then we find to our shock and horror... He calls us to put our foot in the path of suffering for his namesake. If we're going to follow Jesus, it may cost us our comfort and our prosperity because he may call us to put our foot into a hard place. And until we understand that, until we're willing to give up our expectation of comfort and prosperity, we won't lift that first foot up and put it where he says. We haven't begun to follow him. And now think of the other foot, uh, the one that's still behind us. Um, Even though we've begun to follow Jesus, we've lifted our first foot up and put it down, the second one is still back there waiting to be lifted up. But to lift it up and move forward, I have to take it away from the things that now hold it in place. I have to be willing to give up life as I know it now. The first foot involves a commitment to say hello to places and people and commitments I don't know yet. The second foot involves a commitment to say goodbye to places and people and commitments that I know well. If I'm not willing to go forward to the places Jesus calls me to, I'm going to experience a a, a crisis in following him. That's the predicament of the first man. If I'm willing to go forward to places Jesus calls me to, but I'm not willing to make a break with the places he calls me from, then I'm going to experience another crisis in following him. That's the predicament of the second man. These two people who speak to Jesus about discipleship uh, illustrate opposite problems. The teacher of the law is carried away with emotional enthusiasm, but hasn't really considered the sacrifice demanded by being the disciple of an itinerant king. He's impressed with Jesus' miracles and he wants a place in glorious events and glorious kingdoms. But miracles aren't at the heart of uh, Jesus' kingdom ministry and true disciples must be willing to give up life's basic necessities. The second man has a more realistic understanding of the sacrifice required in discipleship His reason for putting or following Jesus seems legitimate. Jesus himself affirms honouring one's parents. But hard as it may seem, Jesus teaches that the overriding demands of his kingdom 
change our ideas even of family. In chapter 12, we'll get to that in uh, three years' time, I think. In chapter 12, Matthew tells us this. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus confronts the teacher of the law with his ignorance of the cost of discipleship and the second man's timidity because he is aware of that cost. And we must count the cost of discipleship and be realistic about the hardships that may come to us as we follow Jesus, but then pick up the first foot and follow. I do hope that both these men were led to real discipleship by Jesus But Matthew doesn't tell us, and that's a bit sobering, isn't it? We're not told how either responded. Did they walk away in discouragement or repent, becoming wholehearted followers from then on in? Their stories are kind of left open-ended, like our own personal stories perhaps today. We're left to wonder what they did with Jesus' call for total devotion, just as he calls us now for total devotion and wants to see what we will do. Follow me, says Jesus. It sounds a bit incomplete, doesn't it? If you said that to me, I'd ask you, where are you going? But the issue in Christian discipleship is never where we're going. It's who are we going with? Our own well-being and comfort haven't got much to do with discipleship, actually. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be fully part of his program and to live by his agenda. And to be part of his program and to live by his agenda might include some tough, some very tough situations. The goal of uh, discipleship isn't the fulfillment of ourselves as Jesus' disciple but the fulfilment of Jesus' plan and purposes. And that means we may have to give up our own fulfilment and purposes for his plan and purposes. We can't put conditions on our discipleship or put limits on our obedience and still think it's true discipleship. Our responsibility is to obey Jesus and let the consequences of our lives flow from that. We must give up everything to him as the first call on our lives and let our obligations work their way out of that relationship with him. A few weeks ago, when I talked about worrying, I said, actually, worrying is my besetting sin. I worry like nobody else. I worry I would win games at Olympics uh, if there was worrying competitions. And I'll tell you, if you think I'm pointing at you today, there are three fingers pointing back at me because my level of discipleship is pretty grim. And I need you uh, to help me uh, to give up everything for the Lord Jesus, to trust in him alone and to let everything else flow from that. As you'll see next week, 
Immediately after these two conversations, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat and they were led into an almighty storm. To be a disciple of Jesus is not free from hardships and difficulties. In following Jesus, our security isn't in our circumstances. Our circumstances change. Our security is in Jesus himself. Jesus never changes. And that's the life of discipleship to which Jesus calls us. And despite all the difficulties, it's a great privilege to be a disciple, a follower of the Lord Jesus. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these powerful verses which speak to us of the discipleship you're looking for in us. Oh, Heavenly Father, please help us. Please help us to recognize that our security, our whole purpose in life is you. And help us to give up everything. Be willing to give up everything, Father, to serve and to worship you. For we ask it in Jesus' name.